This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared Business. Today, we're featuring an episode that was recorded just before the pandemic with Shoshana Zuboff the Harvard professor and acclaimed author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. In this interview, she spoke to Roz Irwin about how capitalism has mutated from a system of production to one of extraction. With human biometric and psychological data as the raw material, which is being collected and put to use back on us. It's a really fascinating conversation with a lot of themes that are important to understanding the story of capitalism in the 21st century. And it's an issue which has come back into the news this week as current vice president of global affairs for Facebook, Nick Clegg, has pushed back against Zuboff over her argument about the problems with big tech. We hope you enjoy it. And now let's go to the episode. You're not the laborer. You're not the product. You are the source of free raw material. I don't want to have a contest with this company about who owns my face. The real issue is they have no right to my face in the first place. Hello, I'm Rosamond Irwin, a journalist at the Sunday Times, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. I think where we should kick off is if, if I just get you to explain what surveillance capitalism actually is. That's a good idea. Let's begin there. Well, you know, surveillance capitalism varies in, in many ways from the history of market capitalism, but there's one key way in which it emulates a familiar historical pattern. So let's start with that. We know that capitalism evolves by taking things that live outside the market dynamic and bringing them into the marketplace so that they can become you know, what economists call commodities, things that can be sold and purchased. All right. So famously, industrial capitalism claimed nature for the marketplace to be reborn as real estate, as land that could be sold and purchased. It claimed work for the marketplace to be resold as labor, right? So that's the pattern. Surveillance capitalism comes along in the 21st century following this pattern, but with a dark and unexpected twist. Because what surveillance capitalism claims is private human experience to be brought inside the marketplace, to be translated into behavioral data, behavioral data that is then combined with advanced computational capabilities. We call that artificial intelligence. We call that machine intelligence, machine learning. Out of this come 
prediction products. That is, computations that predict what we will do now, soon, and later. These prediction products are then sold to business customers. And it turns out that there are a lot of companies who really want to know what we're going to do in the future. Sold to business customers in a new kind of marketplace. This is a marketplace that trades in behavioral futures, futures of human behavior. So to complete the thought, what I'm saying might sound kind of science fiction-y to some folks. But in fact, I'm describing the dynamics of the online advertising market, which is where surveillance capitalism was first invented, deployed, elaborated. And when you just, all you have to do is just step back a little bit to, to clarify these dynamics. Because what happened in the online ad markets, and it was Google that pioneered this new economic logic back in 2000, 2001, and they discovered that they could predict a piece of human behavior. In that case, the human behavior was the click-through rate. And it turns out that advertisers really wanted to know that prediction, the click-through rate, because if they put their ads where and how people were going to click through, they stood to make a lot of money. And so did Google, because those prediction products turned out to be very, very lucrative. So that's the basic logic. Originated at Google, migrated to Facebook, became the default model not only for Silicon Valley, but pretty quickly for most of the tech sector, every app, every startup. This was the straight line to monetization. And finally now, nearly two decades later, we see the same economic logic migrating through what we think of as the normal economy. Many different industries far from Silicon Valley, insurance, finance, retail, education, healthcare, even now coming around full circle to the manufacturing industry, you know, which was the sort of foundation of the, of the 20th century industrial capitalism. I kept thinking reading the book of that, that famous phrase that we hear a lot of um, now about the tech companies, that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And I look back at the root of, of where that came from. It was actually 90, it was about American TV advertising in the 1970s. But when were you aware this problem was coming online? And, and, and do you think that you were a bit of a Cassandra seeing this ahead of, <laughs> of it happening and maybe people not quite listening now? I mean, this feels a very welcome message to be saying now because I think it's something people are starting to think about. Yes, yes, I quite agree with you. You know, I've, I have uh, dissented to a certain extent from that formulation, if it's free, you're the product. I have um, moved that forward to what I think is a more accurate formulation, which is you're not the laborer, you're not the product, you are the source of free raw material. Because even when you're the product, the company has to really care about the product. <laughs> you know, the company has to care about the quality of the product and, you know, how, how the product is. In the logic of surveillance capitalism, these companies don't really care about us per se. What they care about is that we're doing our lives 
in ways that are accessible to their extraction processes. So it's more realistic to think of ourselves as the virgin wood, you know, the uh, the ocean, the meadow, the mountain that's going to be plundered for its ore. We really are the the scene for raw material extraction. I compare it to something that has always really, really bothered me because I love elephants and I respect them so much. The idea that, you know, people poach the ivory, leave behind the the carcass of the elephant, which to me is something very tragic. But I think we're closer to that situation. We are left behind with whatever our real-world problems are, real-world issues. That's not really important. What's important is that they can get enough of our experience to translate it into the kind of predictive data that they really need to make these lucrative prediction products. The rest they're not really concerned about. It's something incredibly sinister sounding, isn't it, that we're the raw materials. You talk obviously about Google being the pioneer of this. It's a notoriously secretive company. How how easy did you find it to dig into what Google was doing? And, you know, did that give you even more cause for concern? Well, I mean, I I spent many years, you know, just reading everything. You're right. Google is a famously secretive company. And its its reason for being secretive, you know, <laughs> this this is sort of the story of the surveillance and surveillance capitalism, <laughs> because they understood early on in this process that if folks knew about what they were actually doing behind the scenes, how they were taking our experience without asking, how they're treating our private experience as a free source of raw material, how they're translating it into data for their own commercial purposes and and the purposes of their customers. If folks knew early on that this is what was going on, we would have rejected and resisted. And virtually every piece of research, you know, that's interviewed people or done survey research that's exposed people to insights about what's really going on backstage, inevitably, and this has been true for nearly a couple of decades, when people learn about these things, they don't want anything to do with it. And their first question is, how do I protect myself from this? Even in the very early Google patents back in the early 2000s, their scientists were celebrating the fact that they were inventing methodologies and mechanisms that would allow them to move through the online space and pick up these um, behavioral signals, what I call behavioral surplus, because it's really data that is more than what the companies need to improve their products and services. They could pick up these streams of, of behavioral signals and do it in a way that no one would ever know that do not leave a trace, that would leave people in ignorance about what was really going on. And they celebrated the fact that they could do all of this without ever arousing the user's awareness. I wondered about one particular example of very targeted advertising, which was the, or or rather um, information compilation on, uh, and it was the Obama campaign. And at the time, and I think I was among them. People thought this was brilliant. Yes, clever. I did too. And that, there's the liberal bias. Yeah. When it's used for sort of 
our side in quotation marks that is uh, then we're less critical of it it's when it's used for sort of more perhaps causes that we don't agree with or in fact more nefarious um, causes but at the time that felt pioneering and exciting and and something really amazing but actually looking back now I think oh that was actually quite sinister what's your own view of that well the Obama campaign was pioneering in the political sphere it was pioneering in behavioral micro-targeting. And this is the same kind of methodology that I've been describing to you, where we we understand a lot about you. We can predict your predilections, your personality. Now we can predict your emotions. We can predict a lot of things about you, and we can predict your behavior. And then we can target messages to you that will connect with everything we know about you everything we know about how you're likely to think, feel, and behave, and that will connect with you in a powerful way. So you'll respond to those messages in exactly the way we hope. When Obama was doing it, one thing was that, you know, it it was out in the open. It was written about it, which is why you could feel excited about it and I could feel excited about it. But perhaps what, what some of our listeners don't know is that the Obama campaign learned these techniques from Google. Eric Schmidt, who was at that time the CEO of Google, was a primary actor in the Obama campaign. He brought the Google methods and mechanisms to the campaign. And there were others who who came on their own and some who followed Eric. And so the Obama campaign really was the first example of surveillance capitalism's foundational mechanisms being pivoted to the political realm. Now, everybody knows, fast forward to uh, 2016, and here we see precisely the same methods and mechanisms that are, you know, simply a day in the life, absolutely normal day in the life, everyday tools of any self-respecting surveillance capitalist. And now in 2016, under the auspices of Cambridge Analytica and its billionaire owner with his nefarious political objectives, uh, the same methods, again, just pivoted from the commercial sphere to the political sphere, but using using essentially, you know, the same tools. And um, what some folks may not know is that Chris Wiley, the young man who is the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower who disclosed much of us, much of, of this to us. And thanks to him, we, we know quite a bit about what happened with Cambridge Analytica. Chris, for all we can tell and what he says, Chris worked in the Obama campaign in 2008, and that is where he was first exposed to these methodologies and these tools. So there is a long history here. And you asked about its significance. And I think one enduring piece of significance that it has had is that early on with the Obama campaign and then other campaigns, because Obama wasn't the only one to, to use this stuff. And, and, you know, it's become de rigueur pretty much in, in many political campaigns these days. Politicians, m- many elected officials learned early on that these mechanisms that were developed in these surveillance capitalist companies had tremendous utilities 
for them, for their campaigns, for their ability to get elected. That is not the only factor, but that is one factor, I believe, that has protected these companies from democracy, from the hammer of democracy, from the law and the regulations that we need to prevent some of these key mechanisms from being legal in the first place. This is very topical at the moment. And and we had Mark Zuckerberg, the um, chief executive and chairman of Facebook, recently saying that, well, first admitting that Facebook was too powerful and effectively he is too powerful, but then also saying that regulators and governments now should play a more active role in controlling what's on the internet. And that seems quite to contradict things he said in the past, of course, but I, I thought it was interesting that's happening now, and, and and I want to know what you think that's a sign of. I mean, has there been an acknowledgement from Google and then Facebook now that they have had too much too much power to determine and and too much control over our lives, or do we think this is a slightly cynical rebranding exercise? Well, there will be many people who will be parsing and trying to interpret this statement that Mark published on March thirtieth. And I will tell you what I think about it from my years of study of this, this kind of operation. Both Facebook and Google have faced over the past couple of decades various crises. And for example, Facebook faced a crisis when it did something called the Beacon Project, where suddenly it was making everybody's private information very public in their network and also, you know, public on the, on the wider internet, on commercial pages and so on. You have an amazing example in the book where it accidentally reveals um, to everybody that a man knows that he's just bought an engagement ring. Yes. The last thing you would ever want to happen. <laughs> he bought an engagement ring as a surprise for his uh, soon-to-be fiancé, and Mark went and, and put it on, you know, some, some page where they were selling diamond rings or something like that. So Beacon was a disaster, and a public relations debacle for for Zuckerberg and for Facebook. Google has gone through many of these. Gmail came out in 2004, and all of a sudden people realized, oh my gosh, they're scraping my emails for targeted advertising. What? You know, and then Street View, they're taking private data off our Wi-Fi systems in our homes. There was Google Buzz, which did many of the things that Beacon did. You know, so it, it has faced these... Um, these cycles of, of confrontation both both companies have over the years. And in studying those very carefully, I discern four stages that the response goes through. Companies' response. The first one is what I call incursion. So that's what we're, you know, they just take what they want to take. They do what they want to do. This is what Zuckerberg used to call, you know, move fast and break things. And then, you know, you just wait for somebody to stop you. And since we really don't know what they're doing because it's secret and it's obscure and it's digital and we don't get it and it's hidden and so forth, it takes a long time for us to react usually. All right. So the first thing is incursion. They just move forward until they encounter resistance. The second thing is habituation. So the lawsuits come, you know, the various forms of litigation or the public debates. They will keep people tied up in court for years and years. They will just engage the public debate and, you know, say this thing and that thing and the other thing. What they really want is for as much time to elapse as possible. The more time that goes by, we're talking years usually, the more time that goes by, 
the harder it is for us to remember what we were so upset about in the first place, <laughs> right? Like, why was I so upset about Gmail? It's such a cool system. What, what was it that really bothered me? You know, so we get habituated. I call that psychic numbing. <laughs> All right. Then ultimately, they'll come to a place, well, a third stage, I call it adaptation. They'll say, okay, we're going to make some concessions, you know, Google, for example, withdrew Google Glass. Some people will remember that. Everybody was upset about Google Glass. We called people who wore Google Glasses glass holes. It was <laughs> very upsetting. It was a huge privacy violation. They withdrew Google Glass. Right. So they make adaptations. When Google withdrew, it ended Buzz, which was its social media effort that drew tremendous anger from the public because of the way it made things public that people didn't want to have public. The very day it withdrew Buzz, that very same day, the New York Times announced Google Plus, its new social media operation. And the techs who went into that and did the forensics found that it was the same software. Some of it had barely been rewritten. So this brings us to the fourth stage. They do adaptation, but then the fourth stage is redirection. Because what really happens is they never stop doing the contested thing that we're all upset about. They never stop doing that thing in the first place. They just call it something different or they start doing it in a different part of the company so that we lose track of it. Anyway, so let's keep this as our background when we're trying to interpret what Mark Zuckerberg is up to in, in writing this interesting statement on March 30th. My guess is he is trying to move into the adaptation phase of this work. You know, he's tried to get us to habituate. He sees more governments starting to get kind of woken up from a two-decade slumber. You know, m more people in the Congress and the Senate in the United States, more people in the Parliament in the UK, more people in the EU. There is more controversy. There's also a sense in this world after Cambridge Analytica's revelations that the public is not going to go back to baseline, that th things have been revealed that we are uncomfortable with in a way that is not going to go away, and there's a shift in public opinion. So I think that the likelihood is that Mark is moving into the adaptation phase. So how is he adapting? One thing is that Facebook, like the other surveillance capitalists, have for a long time enjoyed what's called self-regulation. They've lived in a world without law, without regulation. They have been able to do whatever they wanted to do. All right. Mark would like to keep himself as much as possible in a self-regulating world. So I think that with this statement, he's trying to create this sort of public persona, this, this, this public idea that, oh, we're going to be privacy-respecting now. Mm. Where, in fact, to be privacy-respecting would mean fundamentally rejecting every aspect of the economic logic that make, makes Facebook a lucrative company. All right. So, but he can create a kind of image, a kind of rhetoric about privacy. And if he can do that successfully, he retreats to ground where he's likely to be able, or at least he might hope, that he's going to be able to retain the largest 
you know, the lion's share of self-regulation, the minimum amount of law and regulation. How do you get the minimum amount of law and regulation? Well, we already know in the United States, for example, that Facebook prefers a comprehensive federal law to the laws of the individual states. Already, Illinois, one of our you know big industrial states, uh, formerly industrial states, um, Illinois, Illinois passed a biometric privacy law uh, that is more rigorous than any law in the world, I think it's safe to say. And could you explain just what that did? What does well, for example, law do? it said that, you know, companies can't take, uh, companies can't just take your face. They can't just do facial recognition. They can't just take your voice. You know, they, they can't take the, the, the ongoing monitoring of your, your body in public spaces where they analyze your posture, your gait, you know, other aspects of biometrics, your irises, your fingerprints. So they put in strict privacy laws to safeguard these biological expressions of ourself. This law in Illinois stimulated Facebook to ramp up its state-level lobbying more than any other thing that had ever happened. Until then, they had barely lobbied at the state level. They brought all their lobbying force into Illinois to water down and diminish that law. Same thing in California. California now has uh, privacy legislation that is even more rigorous than the GDPR, the EU uh, regula- new, new regulatory legislation. All right. The surveillance capitalists, Facebook included, has worked hard against the California privacy legislation and to try and diminish it. When it comes to GDPR, which is, of course, the European framework uh, that is the first more comprehensive framework. When GDPR you know, first went live, Mark Zuckerberg said, oh, GDPR, this is great. We need a comprehensive global framework and so forth. However, what did he do? Until that time, until GDPR, Facebook as a corporation was officially domiciled in Ireland. Mm. And as a corporation domiciled in Ireland, every Facebook user would come under the jurisdiction of the GDPR. So what did Mark do? It literally, in the days before GDPR went into effect, he changed the structure of Facebook so that it was domiciled in the United States so that all of its users would be subject to U.S. law rather than to the GDPR. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. That's so interesting because uh, in part of this um, editorial he's written in the Washington Post, he's sort of arguing in favor of GDPR, it appears. I think that's point three in his, his list. Yes. So what Mark also knows is that in the United States... Uh, both Facebook and Google have very aggressive lobbying arms. They also have very aggressive lobbying arms at the level of the EU. So they know that when it comes to any comprehensive global framework, that's where their lobbying strength is. They would rather use have a global framework where they can where they can drive all their lawyers and all their lobbyists and get something that is de minimis rather than have to deal with individual countries or in, in, in the case of the U.S., individual states where the laws are likely to be much more biting, much more rigorous, and much more of a kind of death blow, you know, to their, to their actual economic logic. So this is another agenda that's being worked here in his language. Finally, Let's look at the other things that he says in that essay because some of them I find extremely worrying because Mark sets Facebook up as its own global state. He says in Facebook is not only an executive operation, obviously run by him, it's also a legislative operation. It has a legislative branch because it's within Facebook, you know, that they're trying that he says, he claims, there's a much more complex story about this, he claims they're trying to do the kind of content moderation, you know, to be good citizens, what stays on, what goes off the pages. So that's Facebook as an executive and a legislator. But he also adds an essay, now Facebook is also going to have a judicial branch. Because for people who want to contest Facebook's legislation, they're going to have an internal review board. You don't go to democracy. You don't go to the law. You don't go to your elected officials. You go to an internal judicial review within Facebook. So Facebook, with its billions of users operating all over the world, now has executive, legislative, and judicial. And he is stating that on March 30th and dressing it up with this sort of privacy rhetoric and this law rhetoric when he knows and I know and many other people know that as we speak, there are law firms who are employed by the leading surveillance capitalists and lobbyists to do nothing but come up with rationales, hard-hitting rationales that allow these companies to live under the regime of GDPR with barely having to change their practices. Law firms who are evolving new rights frameworks where they're claiming the economic rights of these companies, 
to continue to operate under their current economic logic without impediment. So I think he's pretty confident that by making those claims which seem, wow, did Mark just wake up and smell the roses? Is he suddenly on the side of democracy? He knows, and the specialists know, that there's much more to this than meets the eye. And now it's time for a quick break. You've talked earlier about our attitudes to this, and I wondered, first of all, if you think we have been naive and, and you know, slowly dawned on us the extent of this problem. But second, do you think that people are waking up to and thinking this is a problem? You, you quote some surveys in there that all seem to show that actually when we're confronted with this, a lot of us say, way, you know, this is not okay, like, you know, these invasions into our privacy. And I feel as though people are picking up more signs of things that they feel uncomfortable with. You know, people are paranoid that Alexa is spying on them, for example. That's a regular paranoia yeah. that you hear. A and step it, in the right direction. Right. <laughs> um, but targeted advertising, that, a lot of people find that creepy. And, and you know, sometimes it's not particularly effective targeted ag- advertising. As a woman in my early 30s, I am routinely on YouTube shown adverts for um, pregnancy tests, right? <laughs> and I find that rather insulting um, and annoying. And, and, you know, that could be upsetting to other people. Um, so sometimes it feels as though they don't get it quite right and, and that jars with us. And I mean on a sort of personal level, uh, but across, you know, populations, are we becoming aware to it now? And, and are, are we, what are we doing to say, hey, we don't think this is all right? Okay. Well, you're absolutely right that, you know, when... When researchers expose quote-unquote users, all of us, all of us citizens, to what's going on behind the scenes in surveillance capitalism, people generally, overwhelmingly, I shall say, react with horror. They don't want any part of it. They want to be protected from it. They want to, how do I camouflage myself? How do I escape this? And yet, as we know, we keep on using it. And the companies over the years have pointed to this and said, see, people want convenience. Yeah, people people really, much. really like us. They don't really care that much. You know, if you have nothing to hide, you don't have to worry. All of that kind of rhetoric. So it behooves us to ask the question, you know, why do we keep on using it? And is this beginning to change? I think, well, I, I actually unpack about 16 reasons why we keep using this. But let me talk to you about the top three. I think the first one is that the idea that they're unilaterally taking our personal experience, our private personal experience, for raw material for these processes of production and sales is so unprecedented that it's it's literally hard for us to grasp it. When something is unprecedented, you don't yet have a language for it. You don't have... You don't have a mental category for it, and it it almost makes it invisible. So the unprecedented is allowed to sort of sneak in and 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 root and flourish long before we even are able to, to sort of perceive it and cognize it. So that's one thing we've been vulnerable to because this is so unprecedented. And this moves hand in hand with the second reason, which is, you know, we've talked about the fact that this economic logic has been extremely lucrative for these companies. Just to give you one tiny example, Google invented this logic in the years 2000, 2001. Google went public. It IPO'd 2004. 
And it was only then that the world, just through its IPO documents, got any insight into the economic logic that had been invented and, and taken root at Google, what I call surveillance capitalism. In those documents, one sees that between 2000 and 2004, Google's revenues increased by 3,590%. So when I say they, you know, they found the straight line to monetization, <laughs> why mess around with anything else when you can make this kind of money? That was really the bottom line. So a lot of that money, a lot of that capital went into designing these systems to perpetually keep us in ignorance. How do you design systems that touch us the way these systems touch us, and yet we never know what's going on behind the scenes? You know, we download a diabetes app, and we have no way of knowing that it is taking our contacts. In many cases, it's taking the contacts of our contacts it's taking our messages. In many cases, it's taking our cameras. In many cases, it's taking our microphones. These are things that are going on behind the scenes. And it's taking all of these data from us, all of these aspects of our experience, now translated into data, and it's streaming them to third parties, most of those third-party domains owned by Facebook and Google. That's how the apps make money. So we're living in a world, and our children are living in a world, where all of the key operations are designed to be hidden from us, designed to keep us in ignorance, designed to bypass our awareness, designed thus to override our decision rights, to override our impetus to self-determination. So this is another reason why we keep doing things that might not be good for us and might not be good for our society, because we simply don't know. The third reason is that, let's face it, there was a time when there was some commerce on the internet and then there was other stuff on the internet too. Right now, it's pretty much the case that surveillance capitalism has eaten the internet. It's also the case that for anyone to try and just live a generally effective life and go through your day in an effective way whether it means, you know, getting your kids' grades from the, from the school, you go online, getting your health uh, results, your test results maybe, from your doctor's office or from the hospital, you go online. Organizing dinner with your friends and family, you go online, right? So just to effectively participate in daily life, we are forced to march through the channels that are also surveillance capitalism's supply chains. And this is an intolerable situation. This is a choice that 21st century citizens should never have to make. But these are the real reasons why, despite the fact that we don't want it, we're still in it because we're living in a moment when the real alternatives have been foreclosed. I wonder where you think, you know, at government level we should go. I mean, you talk about in the book Spain's right to be forgotten, which is a very interesting thing. And we've had Germany look at particular hate speech online, obviously partly informed by their history. And actually in, in, in the UK we have a, a white paper coming out that's particularly to do with protecting children online, although due to Brexit it keeps being put off. But, <laughs> but it might be out by the time this comes out. Um, where do you think we should go you know, in terms of regulation? And what is, what is the right approach? And how do we make sure it's doing what we want it to be doing? Yes, that's such a good question. 
And in part, such a good question because we all have a big work of invention ahead of us. You know, if I withdraw from Facebook or from other apps and other online services, I probably will enjoy better mental health and a, and a richer and fuller life. But it's not going to stop surveillance capitalism. And of course, we discovered that I think Facebook has shadow profiles of people who aren't on it. So that isn't a solution either. (laughs) So my brother has never been on Facebook, you know, for whatever reason, doesn't like it, thinks it's pointless. Uh, but they they have will have a profile of him because his his wife is on there. I'm yes. on there. His, you know, his yes. sister, all his friends. You're absolutely. They will right. have a concept of yes. who he is. That is quite creepy to a lot quite of people. Creepy, and in fact, you know, I call this the world of no escape because increasingly we have allowed to be built around us a world of no escape. Again, something intolerable. I talk to young people who say. There's no place I can go to be backstage. Hmm. There used to be an idea that, you know, you perform yourself on stage, but then there's a backstage where you retreat to in privacy or simply with family and friends where you can be, quote, your real self. But now you may think you're backstage and then, you you know, you're walking across campus and you think you're backstage and all of a sudden you realize that someone's got their phone on and they're filming you. They're taking video of you. You're on stage. Now there's something that psychologists call the secondary chilling effect. So it's not just we self-censor online, but we self-censor our behavior in the real world in anticipation of what they're going to gather uh, that will then appear online in social media or or photos or, or other things that will appear online that we have no control over. So you're right. This is a real problem. So withdrawing as individuals may help us in our mental health, but is not going to fix the problem. What's going to fix the problem is collective action. It's how we come together in new forms of collaboration. You know, a century ago, facing the raw, violent excesses of a lawless industrial capitalism, people came together and they formed unions And with their unions, they pressured democracy, they pressured elected officials for the institutionalization in law of the right to bargain collectively and the right to strike. And they ended child labor and they ended unsafe working conditions and they ended the employer's right to name the, you know, to to say that you had to work 70 hours a week or you couldn't keep your job. That was collective action that was relevant to the threats of industrial capitalism. Now we have to invent the forms of collective action that are going to meet the challenges of surveillance capitalism, and that's going to take new forms. As far as law and regulation, it means that we're going to – we need to start actually applying the privacy laws that we do have and the antitrust laws that we do have, but those are not going to be enough. We're going to stand on the shoulders of those laws and those regulatory frameworks because we need new laws and regulations that specifically interrupt and outlaw the mechanisms of surveillance capitalism. Let me give you an example. In privacy law, we talk about data ownership. Data ownership skips the entire first phase of surveillance capitalism's operations which is taking our private human experience in the first place and translating it into data. 
I don't want to have a contest with this company about who owns my face. The real issue is they have no right to my face in the first place. That is not okay. That I walk down the street and there are unseen devices that are recording the 1,000 muscles in my face in order to analyze my emotions and therefore predict what I'm likely to do next. That is simply not okay. So we have to have the kind of laws and regulations that protect our experience, our decision rights, our personal autonomy, which is to say our freedom, our free will, so that they can't simply take our experience and use that to influence us, to shape our behavior, as we've seen with the micro-targeting, Cambridge Analytica, and, and all the kinds of things we've discussed. A second thing is I've described these markets, where they make their money, sales into markets that trade exclusively in human futures. Do we really want a dominant form of capitalism that trades in human futures? Because as soon as you reverse engineer the, the competitive dynamics of that kind of marketplace, you get to all of the harms of surveillance capitalism that we've been describing. Because in order to be competitive in those markets, first of all, you need a ton of data, economies of scale. You need different kinds of data, not only what we do online, but what we do walking and talking and living our lives in the real world every single day. And ultimately, they discovered that the most predictive form of data comes from actually intervening in our lives, intervening in our action, and outside of our awareness, shaping and tuning and hurting us in specific directions that favor their commercial outcomes. And as we saw, Cambridge Analytica used the same techniques to favor its desired political outcomes. So you can't have futures markets without these harms, which are an affront to democracy from above, as well as an affront to democracy from below, because they erode the entire idea of individual sovereignty and autonomy, which are the building blocks for any kind of democratic society. I think you've summarized it really beautifully in the conclusion when you say we, we need essentially to think about how we want not to live, how we want the world not to be. Yes. Effectively. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful chatting. Thank, Thank you. you it's time. been a great honor. I appreciate it so much.